Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author Munya Andrews, who joined me to talk about her book, Journey into Dreamtime, which is a guide to the ancient wisdom and beliefs that form the spiritual philosophy held by the Aboriginal peoples of Australia. As well as being a writer, Munya is a lawyer, educator, and an accomplished influential voice in her community, well-versed in traditional laws, customs, and practices. She is also a much sought-after public speaker, so it was an absolute privilege to talk with her about the dream time and the magical world of her people, one which I knew very little of before reading her book, I have to admit. Enjoy the episode. Munya, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, um, Rick. I'm really pleased to be here. So, yeah, looking forward to it very much. One thing I get from your book is that the Dreamtime and the Aboriginal peoples of Australia are inextricably linked. So I think it would be good to perhaps talk about those peoples first. Sure. So um, the Aboriginal people um, are the Indigenous peoples of, of Australia. Um, there are about, uh, about 200 different uh, individual nations, of which mm. my people, the Bardi people, are, are one. So that's about how many languages are spoken as well, individual nations. Um, there's a map of Australia put out by the Institute of Aboriginal Studies and uh, it, it shows all of the nations and when people look at it, they think, oh, my goodness, that's just like Europe, but, of course, on a much grander scale. So, um, yeah. So when it comes to the Dreamtime itself, does that mean that each of those nations became aware of it separately or is there a single point at which the, the people sort of became aware of the Dreamtime? Yeah, so far as I know, it's been always been shared and known between all of the different groups. But of course, it's uh, so it's the one thing that unites us as mm. as Aboriginal people. Um, but it's um, in in terms of its expression and what what um, uh, it feeds it is um, differs according to the different nations. So, for instance, the some of the dreaming ancestors will be different. Um, but there are there is enormous similarity, um, e- even though there are those differences. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, in regards to the dream time itself, mm-hmm. what is it? I mean, and I know that's a really overly simplified question, but no, no, no. What is the dream time? Oh, look! Everybody's curious, and they want to know, Rick. I think because the name itself just conjures up this really mystical. Um, spirituality so people are naturally curious Um, I always say I always take my lead from an aboriginal elder who says you know Gadia asks us about dreaming and dream time all the time and um, it's a difficult thing to answer because it's it's such a big thing and and that's what it is I always say to people look it's a philosophy it's it's a spiritual approach to to life um, it's about creation. Um, it incorpor- 
it's it's all about the meaning of life and 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 how to live it. So it incorporates all of those things as one would expect of of an of a religion or a spirituality. Um, so it deals with the you know the bigger issues of you know what's my purpose down here on earth and so so forth. How do I live a good life? Uh, uh, how do um, you know? How do the ancestors guide me and so forth? So, um, so um, my book Journey into Dreamtime, I wrote that to um, help pro- provide an overview of what Aboriginal Dreamtime is, and the, the chapters there are seven chapters dealing with a, a, a separate topic. For instance, um, like w- what does it mean to have uh, dreaming? Um, so, for instance, my in the family dreaming is um, Nimanbor, which is the flying fox or, or, or fruit bat, and um, my personal dreaming is is eagle. And so people say, "Yeah, but Manya, what does that mean?" And it's about um, connecting with those animals. Sometimes it's plants, sometimes it's stars, um, and it's about uh, connecting with them on on a spiritual level. Um, and that your dreaming gives you strength to to cope with things in life. So all of the talents and strengths um, and characteristics that that particular animal has, for eagle, for example, um, I that that is within me. And so that um, the simple uh, explanation I give to people is, you know, eagles fly high and can see far and. Um, and wide and and can see the lie of the land. So what it means is I have that ability to be um, a thinker and be able to see five, six years ahead in time. But when I want to focus in on the details, specific details, then I can use that ability of the eagle as well who uh, is, hones in on um, its prey and, and can spot things, um, you know, from a great distance. So I give that as an example, and same with my bat dreaming. Um, when um, when I want to, um, I'm stumped by a problem, and I want to um, consider a solution. I literally hang upside down like a bat, and it, <laughs> it really it really works for me because it gives me. I, I get to see the problem in a way I hadn't before, so I've got that great ability. So that makes me a great problem solver and, a, and an asset mm. to an organisation who's looking to people with those skills. Um, so that's one way of explaining it and people go, oh, oh yeah, I can relate to that. Um, so it's about giving you those um, abilities. Yeah, I read that part of the book and it made me think of the Hanged Man tarot card because yes, in that he's yes. hung upside down and that card is about about exactly what you just described there about getting a different perspective on things. Um, yeah, definitely. Just going back to the ancestor beings, can we talk a little bit more about them and yep. and and who they are? Sure, sure. So the ancestor beings are um, those beings that created the world and um, created our our land, our continent, um, created all of the. Um, the, the the landscape features and so forth, um, and so uh, around Australia there'll be different uh, ancestor beings that are important to a particular location, um, but there are some that are shared by the different groups. So, for instance, one of the the greatest ancestor beings is the rainbow snake, 
and um, that's shared right across Australia and we've got stories involving the snake and how it travelled across the land and created um, various um, features in the landscape and so forth. And so it's known by different names, um, different uh, Indigenous names across Australia, um, but in in English it's uh, known as the rainbow snake. And um, people say to me, you know, Manya, why is it called the rainbow snake? Because as it moved across the country, it carried with it a special tool to help create these things. And the tool that it carried was a plain quartz crystal. And if, as you know, when you hold a crystal up into the, into the light, uh, there's a rainbow prism that shines through it and you can see the rainbow. So that's its connection. And then it put that in its little dilly bag made up of possum skin and carried that with it as it travelled around the country. The rainbow snake is, is, is not God, but it's a symbol of God. Um, and, and it's regarded um, with, with, uh, in such high degree um, that you'll find Aboriginal people will start lowering their voice and whispering when they're speaking about it because um, it's so sacred and, they, and they're very well aware of um, its potential to create and destroy so they don't want to draw its ire so they raise their, um, put, you know, lower their voices. Um, so that the snake doesn't hear them. So that that one's really quite common right across Australia. Um, there are other um, ancestral beings, um, uh, for instance, um, a lot of ancestral beings from the stars, for instance, and um, one of the biggest um, creative groups are the uh, Seven Sisters of the Pleiades. Mm. And, again, they're known by different names right across Australia, um, Manya being one of them, one of the names. And um, they came down from the heavens and the same thing, they travelled across the country and uh, got up to all sorts of adventures and gave the people culture and language even. Um, so they're regarded in, in high regard. High regard. Um, so the ancestral beings will differ right across the country. They include things like, um, you know, crocodile and um seagulls and, and uh, eagles down in Victoria in the southern states. Uh, Bunjil is a, um, is a great creator being there. And I really relate to Bunjil because I've got eagle dreaming. So um, there's, And then there are um, uh, all sorts of other creator beings. They can be as small as ants through to um, larger animals like kangaroos and crocodiles and so forth. Um, each carrying their own Dreamtime stories, if you like, um, and um, have uh, you know meaning to to um, different uh, Indigenous groups. Hmm. So, what's the relationship between these creator beings and dreamings? Okay, so um, big, so they're the ones who actually then gave us dreamings. So, for instance, like eagle dreaming would have come from a specific ancestor like Bunjil. So mm -hmm. they, in a sense, um, I, I guess I'm just trying to think of the right word for them, but they, in a sense, are the beings that pass on culture and language and spirituality to us and that we also have a relationship uh, with. Uh, it, it could be as grandfather, grandmother, auntie, uncle, or brother, sister, and um, so you have a, a, a close relationship 
um, to these beings, um, uh, and they they considered uh, our ancestors, so they considered family. So people uh, look upon these beings as though they are family, um, and you know brothers and sisters or whatever. So they they I guess as family, they're they're seen as um, uh, close beings that you have a direct relationship with, and people speak rather fondly of them. And um, yeah, so th- there's that connection. Right. Okay. So a, a dreaming is is a connection with one of these ancestor beings. Yes. Yes. And so and it helps you understand creation on on that um, ancestral beings level. So okay. um, yeah. Mm. And so, how does humanity fit into this narrative, the the, the concept of the dream time? Yeah. Well, um, the the old people say that um, uh, long ago, um, man or w- a woman uh, were one with their totems, with with their dreamings. Um, so this it's it's one of those really curious spiritualities where um, we were plant and animal before we became human, mm. and um, yeah, and so there's a higher placing of those individuals. I know in a lot, like you know, in the reincarnation beliefs of um, Hinduism, and that uh, humans are uh, uh, much higher than animals and so forth. But in our culture, it's the animals and plants, and that they have um, a higher sort of existence than than humans. Hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. One thing I'm wondering as well is that is there a time frame in terms of when this was happening? Because I, I imagine with a, with a philosophy like this, it sort of it exists out of time and it's not a case that it's over now, it's, it's always going on. But is, but is there also sort of a yeah. point in the past when, when humanity was created within this philosophy? Um, yeah. Um, yes and no to both. So it's there's a little bit of a paradox. It's sort of mm-hmm. um, our dream time teaches that all time is one and it's now mm. and it's immediate. The past, present and future are all connected. And what's wonderful about that is one, um, quantum scientists are now coming to this realisation that time is in fact a circle and that it's it, it's. Um, it's uh, contemporaneous. It's one now, and the great idea um, idea about that is that um, you know there's that observer effect that they talk about in quantum physics, where you can stand anywhere on that circle and and still be a part of what's going on. And not only that, that you can also help create the new. The, the, it's almost like the present is being recreated even now as we speak. Um, and and there is no uh, fine divide between the past, present, and future. Time is is one. Um, so it's a it's an old philosophy when you think about it, um, uh, where um, time is no time, if you like. And again, um, I know that some scientists who are looking into this question of of time, such as um, the Italian scientist Carlo Rovelli. Um, says, you know, ultimately what he's learned from his research is that time is all about us, uh, not about um, measurable quantities and that, but it's it's about us and our souls. And when I read that, I thought, my goodness, that's very close to Aboriginal dream time, what we teach in, in our philosophy. Mm. So that time is one. 
Mm, definitely. I, I think you're absolutely right there. I, I think a lot of scientists are, are coming to this sort of realization, but it's just, <laughs> it's not that well publicized because I, I think the science in the mainstream is often sort of depicted as being about reason and, and evidence and, and materialism, basically. But it does seem that there is that movement now to, and a realization that, like you described. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even even in psychology, you know, Carl Jung, I think for me, is is has come close to um, describing the dream time in his writings. There's that famous quote of his where he was sitting on a, a rock in his backyard and he lost all sense of himself and couldn't distinguish between am I the rock that I that am sitting on or is, you know, am I the rock, um, um, am I the actual rock that Carl Jung is sitting on? And I, when I read that again, I thought, you know, yeah, that's a dream time experience where you, you blend into one, that, in, into that connection between the rock and human being and realise that you're not separate from it but you're actually um, part of nature. Is there something that's lost in translation when the dream time is described as the dream time? In, in, in Aboriginal languages, is it easier to sort of engage with this concept? Um, yeah, in some ways it is. And I, I think people also get, up, get, get mixed up with the use of the word dream in there. And so they yeah. say, is, is it like dreaming? And I say... In a, some ways it is. Um, certainly the dreams you have at night and that are part of the dream time, but there's a different kind of dreaming that goes on. It's like um, you're you're actually awake but you're like kind of daydreaming. It's closer to that. And, in fact, in our languages we distinguish between ordinary dreams and then dreaming dreams. And the dreaming dreams are considered um, more important because you have direct access to the dream time where these beings can can talk to you and you can have an experience um, uh, and and come back and share um, your insight with the rest of um, the, the tribe or nation. Um, so I think that tends to confuse people. And one of the other problems with the use of the term dream, I think, is that there's that it causes confusion for the Western mind who, um, you know, makes a distinction between rational thought and then dreams. So, um, again, without understanding that they're all part of the one the one thing. Um, but certainly, um, you know, as you're, you're younger and you're um, taught these things, you, you do get a greater understanding and the older you get, you begin to sort of, understand um, what it is that the elders are trying to teach. Um, certainly that's been the case for me and having had certain um, experiences along the way, I've really come to realise what they've been um, what we're ta- talking about when I was a child. Mm, that's really interesting. It, if it's okay, would it be right to talk a little bit about your own experiences? Was, was there a moment for you when it sort of all became clear? You, you, you got it. Yeah, well, one of the, um, you know, I grew up hearing stories about the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades, and then also um, about the Rainbow Snake. And um, I started to have some experiences 
I'd say in my mid twenties, and um, of of having encounters with the with with the snake, and one in particular when I was um, when I was living in Melbourne, and I'd gone to visit this place called the Organ Pipes National Park. And I actually spotted it from a plane as I was flying into Melbourne from Perth. And I looked down and I saw this creek and it, it, it's almost like it called to me. And I thought I had to look it up in the, you know, the UBD, the Metropolitan Map um, of, of Melbourne and, and to see what was that creek. And I found it and it's actually in a, um, a Organ Pipes National Park. And so I went there. And walked around, and uh, I was, and then sat and meditated by the river. And I had an encounter with the rainbow serpent, where I, I saw it, um, and it was very real to me. Whether, um, you know, whether that was in a meditation or not, I certainly saw it and experienced it. And it was this translucent kind of color, and it was like a, there was a fire. Uh, like a campfire lit inside its body that was giving off uh, a very green light, a green glow. And um, green in a lot of cultures is associated with healing. And, of course, the rainbow serpent is is one of the the superior healing beings, if you like. And so I had that encounter and it reminded me of a book I had read with, of a Native American author whose name escapes me at the moment, but it was the same thing he was saying. When I was little, he said, I grew up with stories that my people told me, and it wasn't until he grew, um, grew up to be a man and he started to have encounters with these very beings that his people had told him about. And, and he said, I realised then they weren't just stories, that my people were actually telling me truths that I had to experience as an older person to understand them. So, um, so that was a very much um, a pivotal moment in my awakening, if you like, my spiritual awakening, um, and having the account encounter um, with the rainbow serpent. Um, and there've been other sorts of similar um, experiences like that along the way. But uh, the rainbow serpent is one of the 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 biggest ones, and. Um, um, we actually get our healing abilities from the rainbow serpent. And so that's been passed on to me. I think once I've opened up to that that uh, that being, that uh, um, uh, I've now been following a path of being an Aboriginal healer um, along with some of our other people as well. So with a personal dreaming, is that something that, that somebody would have to find themselves or can this connection can a dreaming come to them can it find them i'm curious about that yes 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 no it can and um in in fact uh, when i run my workshops on aboriginal dream time i've helped people discover what their personal dreamings are i might take them through the bush and take, uh, give them an activity to do an exercise where they learn to walk quietly in the bush and be really observant about everything that's around them. Look for any um, signs on the ground. It could be a bird feather or um, some fur, some possum fur or anything like that. And um, then I ask them to sit with that for a while and then um, come and talk to me and share 
<clears throat> what messages came to them. So um, definitely I believe everybody has, has dreamings uh, and some are already aware of them. Uh, I've had people say to me, yes, Manya, you know, I've always um, had a had a connection with crows, for example, and um, mm. then I'll say, I'll talk with them and ask them more questions and I'll say, well, it sounds like crow might be your dreaming. And when we look to the late Steve Irwin, who um, the crocodile hunter, uh, who was very famous in Australia and had his own show, um, I always say to people, clearly to me as an Aboriginal person, he had crocodile dreaming because he was very much drawn to those animals and in uh, and uh, 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 so you know spent a lot of time with them and and so forth. So um, clearly he had crocodile dreaming. Um, and so with I can I often help people and lead them on the activity. So it does come, it, it can come to, to you. I think it's more likely to come to you personally because it has to make sense on that um, personal experiential level. Um, but certainly I, I help guide people to discovering what their dreamings might be. Okay, yeah, because I'm, I'm wondering if, if a dreaming came to somebody and they weren't prepared for it, would that feel yeah. like a supernatural experience? For example, like a haunting, yes. or yes. I'm just I'm just thinking about uh, experiences that people have with with a haunting, or some, they they see something in in a forest, and it makes me think of that. Like they're a person that's unprepared for this experience that they have that's been initiated yes. by the the other side rather than the their their side. If you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that it can come that way also. And certainly people have, have shared those experiences with me. Um, and then I've been able to work th- through that with them so that they're no longer afraid. And, and initially, I think it's almost like it's, it's, um, you're, you're obliged to go through a very scary experience as part of your um, awakening. Fear um, is, is part of uh, feeling great awe for something greater than yourself and something you don't understand also. So uh, it's part and parcel of the shamanic experience, which just reminded me as you were talking then, um, one of the other experiences I had um, uh, alongside seeing the, the rainbow serpent, I had an experience again when I was living in Melbourne and I I had had a friend come over to visit me and I went out to see her off. And as I walked back into the room, um, my whole being just disintegrated into um, bubbles, you know, the bubbles that you blow. And and it was the most frightening experience. And I remember, you know, I'd done a lot of reading with um, uh, just the, his name escapes me there, uh, Carlos. Um, Castaneda thank you Um, yeah and lucky I had read one of his books where he described that exact experience so I knew what that was then when I had it but it it was so scary and then I just had and the voice said what is your intent and Castaneda of course was always about um, what is your intent And and I thought right well my intent is gather all of my bubbles and 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 lie on the bed and and shut my eyes and hope that this passes so I focused on that so I walked 
like walked in bubbles over to the bed and all the bubbles just came down and lay down with me in in that form and I shut my eyes and then when I woke up I I was in one piece but um, when I shared that with some Native American elders um, um, uh, at the time I uh, was also exploring a number of different spiritualities and uh, they said to me "Uh, you're a shapeshifter and explain what that experience was about. It, it was bloody scary at the time, but mm. um, now I see that was my awakening into that world, that other world of beings and, and seeing things. And, and, and I've also been scared. I have been haunted by um, a particular ghost, if you like, um, who for years uh, would haunt me. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized she was just initiating me into the world of spirit and um and and you I had to be scared as a consequence you know and that's why you know people go on vision quest and and go out into the bush at night because you have to face your fears uh to be able to walk um as a law woman as a shaman um so um yes certainly people do get their spiritual awakening through those sorts of experiences. But at the end of the day, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's just teaching you to be respectful and to be in awe of something far greater than you are. Mm, No, absolutely. I I think initiation is something that's really important when it comes to understanding the difference between how the West perceives the supernatural and how other cultures do. I I think that's the, that might even be the key distinction yeah I mean absolutely you know I must sound like a raving lunatic to some people and that's okay <laughs> you know people are entitled, people are entitled to their opinions but I I have a deeper understanding of what those experiences were about and I'm, I'm one of the most sane people actually that you'll ever meet um so um and I'm that makes me open to all sorts of different experiences and opinions that people have I'm one one of those people, someone can say the most outrageous thing and I just sit with it quietly to find where the truth is and and what I need to take away from that um, experience and that conversation with them. And um, so your your teachers are all around you all the time. Mm, Definitely. shape and form, yeah. It's fascinating that you talk about how that, the Native American man described you as a shapeshift. I was I was thinking about asking about that if a because there are many many cultures that have this concept of people being able to have that ability. And I'm wondering if is it because of that connection with a a type of dreaming, an animal dreaming, and maybe an over obsession with how a shapeshifter can physically manifest. Do you think that that the concept of shapeshifting is something that exists on a more metaphysical level? Yeah, for sure, and and um, exist in many different cultures, um, and um, you know, and when you think about it, um, two of my dreamings involve flying beings, the bat and the eagle. So, um, flying um, features very prominently in my spiritual experiences, um, where quite often I, I can fly and and see things. Um, and some people call that also. Um, uh, remote viewing, um, but I have that mm. ability as well. So, um, but the shape shifting is very much um, a part of that. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it's shared among many. Hmm. So, does that mean that a lot of abilities, like you describe, are they 
quite common amongst people in Aboriginal nations. Yeah, very much so, and um, a, a lot of um, a lot of our, our people are very spiritual, and um, very often um, you have conversations with people that describe experiences like like this. And of course, um, your particular experience or talents, if you like, um, can be completely different to somebody else's. Um, one of my teachers, uh, she just passed away not so long ago, um, but a couple of months ago. But um, she would say to me, Manya, she said, oh, she says, when when everybody's asleep, she says, I have to go underground and tidy up what's down there. And there's a lot of crap down there, believe me. Um, <laughs> and she's talking about her experience as a shamanic woman to go and deal with that sort of business. So I haven't had that experience. But when you talk to Aboriginal people, they will tell you um, and share stories like this, um, all different that involve, you know, different kind of talents and also different kind of experiences. Um, And there's nothing better than sitting around a campfire at night and people are sharing these stories um, that they have. And, and so that you become aware of um, just um, how much bigger our world is um, that's not seen um, to the visible eye, but through these people's experiences, you're made aware of a whole range of um, experiences. Hmm. Something else that you talk about in your book, and I wanted to discuss are song lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, songlines are a concept that's understood around the world. You have dragon paths in China and you have the ley lines in England, of course. Um, and um, so songlines um, are actually the, the, the paths that the dreaming beings, ancestor beings, took as they travelled across the country. Um, they left... Uh, the residual vibration and energy uh, in the land and they sang songs as they created things as well. And so the song lines are the stories connecting through the songs um, that take you through the um, through the country, through the land. Um, and some are quite um, really large epics that take you know, um, weeks to uh, re- recount, to to retell, um, and, and others are shorter that cover maybe just a few kilometres as opposed to hundreds of kilometres. Um, and the idea would, um, they would stretch right across the country and so that the stories and the information would travel from one Aboriginal group, maybe on the West Coast, right over to the East Coast, um, an example I give of this is that people in the Kimberley, where I'm from in northern Australia, knew of the existence of people way down in Tasmania uh, through the one of these uh, song lines and storylines because that's how information travelled along them. So, um, they, so they join up, but where the ancestors stop to do a particular thing, they might camp, uh, have camped there and collected um, you know, cooked animals and so forth, and and did did a ceremony or or um, or, or learned uh, taught a new dance or something. Those spots along the song lines are what we call sacred sites um, because the energy um, 
is is much stronger in that one position. All of the land is sacred, of course, but sacred sites are where these beings stopped, and um, the the what they left behind can be so um, overpowering and overwhelming for people. People report being dizzy and things like that around these uh, places, these strong places, if you like. But um, so we carry the song lines through our different stories. Um, and there are um, different song lines. The Rainbow Serpent will will have um, different song lines through different people's country. There's uh, another couple of ancestral beings called um, Wati Gujara, who, who are the two men, and they journeyed from the north right down to the south. They So as people share those stories um, and songs, they can follow those song lines um, uh, and following in the tracks of the ancestors. So there are a couple of tours in in Australia. I know that um, some Aboriginal groups are taking people out along the song lines, so and learning to sing the songs as they go, and they can see the land unfold between them, um, because the songs uh, describe um, all of the landscape, whether there's a hill here and a steep incline uh, up there, or or certain. Um, plants where you can stop and eat and be able to stay for one day and then move on. So, um, yeah, so they're, so they're lines of energy, if you like. That, and they not only exist in Australia, they actually extend outwards into the sea. So my people, the Bari people, we live on the coast of northern Australia, so our song lines go out um, into the ocean over to Indonesia and that, and then they also extend into outer space. So song lines can go upwards as well, as well as downwards in, through the center of the earth. Um, and they connect um, all sorts of beings um, along the way and people uh, as well. So, yeah. Wow, that's I, I didn't realize that. So with those song lines that go up into space, uh, I, I imagine they give you awareness of beings that live out there yeah absolutely so we when I was little um you know I was taught for instance that the Pleiades for instance are our relatives and as a little girl my grandmother would uh, call me out and take me out and say go and say hello to your relatives there they are and you know I would wave to them and 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 uh, you know half expected these relatives to just pop out of the sky to come and and see me um, one time I went to a CSIRO, um, which is our sci- one of our scientific organisations here in Australia. Uh, they had a conference and there was a, an Aboriginal woman artist, I think her name was Karen Win- Williams, if I can recall, and she did this fabulous presentation of um, information about the environment using her um, paintings that she had drawn and she showed one and she said, um, her dreaming was that of the Southern Cross constellation. Um, and she said, so this is a view of, of that dreaming, but it's not from Earth looking towards the Southern Cross. It's from the Southern Cross looking back toward Earth. So she had the the image passed down through her family and she was able to share that um, with with all the scientists in the room and that it was just one of the most incredible things I'd heard and seen. So for her, her family's um, ties lie that way toward the southern constel- uh, 
um, through the Southern Cross constellation and the stars there. And that's because her dreamings extend right up into that star constellation. Mm. That's wonderful. I I really like that. So Mm. I think this kind of goes back to what I was asking earlier. With these ancestor beings walking across the land and and singing the the world into existence, is that that's still happening now, isn't it? I mean, I, and I yeah. know now is almost a redundant term yeah. considering the, the how yeah. how Aboriginal people understand reality. But I suppose what I'm yeah. I'm intrigued as to, for my own benefit, understanding that. So the ancestor yeah. beings are st- they're still walking the land. Yeah, so they're still doing that. And what's amazing about that is we as human beings can play a part in that creation, that we, we're contributing to it at the same time as well through, um, you know, through the, the, the observer effect um, by singing and, and, and dancing the stories, painting ourselves like kangaroos, for instance, doing the kangaroo dance, connecting um, with those ancestral beings. So, um, it does make people feel really powerful beings themselves that we can all play a role in in creating the world. Um, it's a, it's an amazing concept when you think about it. Um, yeah, as playing just as an important part as they are. So, how does that? I'm trying to I'm trying to think how to phrase it. Does that for you kind of give an indication of how language arose? I remember um, I read the song lines by Bruce Chatwin, and in that he talks about how perhaps it came about because of a almost a need for people to describe where they were, and that's what language serves. It allows a person to name the world around them and, and build an idea of it. Yeah, yeah. So um, in um, among the different nations, they will say that certain ancestral beings gave them language. Um, among the Bunjalung people, for instance, on the east coast of Australia, um, they say that the birds taught them to speak and that's where language comes from. Um, and so many of the other nations have similar stories. Certainly the Dreamtime ancestors um, taught language and so uh, it's seen to be like a gift given to us by these ancestral beings. Um, uh, and um and they talked in the dream time and and so uh we we imitate them so mm. yeah exactly that's how language developed so with that in mind as well with that, that acting in the way that the ancestor beings acted are most aboriginal cultures nomadic or do they do some stay in one place i'm t- i'm thinking about sort of the wandering nature of these ancestor beings that they walk along the land and that's something I'm interested in yeah. too. Yeah. Um, we were nomadic but only within our tribal territories. Mm. So we didn't, for instance, wander all over Australia as some people mistakenly think. We were very respectful of other nations and their territory and you'd have to be invited onto their, their country and uh, you certainly couldn't take over in, in, in that sense. So, and it, it was nomadic according to the season. So you would follow the seasons and food availability and, and that water availability um, would, that would require you to walk within that territory. 
of course, in, with the larger territories, there's some um, Indigenous groups have a much wider territory. For instance, in New South Wales, one of the largest groups is are the Wurundjeri, sorry, the Wurundjeri um, people, um, and their area um, covers much of New South Wales, actually. So. Um, there would have been a lot more movement within that one territory. Um, so nomadic only within your territorial, your tribal territory, if you like, grounds. Um, uh, yeah, so so in fact, um, in, in Bruce uh, Pascoe's uh, uh, Dark Emu book, um, and he quotes one scientist as really challenging that that stereotype of Aboriginal people as being nomadic and wandering all over the place. And this um, uh, Gadia author actually suggested that um, it was Europeans who were who were far more nomadic than Aboriginal people. So really turning that on its head. Um, so um, and so certainly would travel some some vast distances, but not beyond really your own tribal territory. <clears throat> so. Um, You'd be mindful. People did gather in places. They did meet in special places where they'd uh, travel to for for ceremony and doing corroboree and things like that. But it was only for that specific purpose, and then you would go back home. Hmm. So I imagine many songlines traverse different territories. How how yeah. does that affect how the information in that songline is kind of transmitted and 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 told to people? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is you'll have songlines say in one language, and but but by the time it reaches its end destination, it's completely in another language. So one that um, enables the sharing of languages, because um, you'd you'd be able to sing your portion your portion of the section of the songline, but often maybe another two um, or three of neighbouring languages. So that's how that the, the 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 stories will stop dead, and then they'll go into completely another language and continue that way. So and so it was a rare individual who would know a songline in its whole completion. Usually, um, a very learned, wise man or or woman who would perhaps know the song in in com- completion the whole cycle, um, but um, very often it stopped at two or three languages so yeah but that's an interesting that's a great question because um yeah that shows how it how it worked and um how they progressed Mm. um yeah and something else I remember that you talk about in the book is that there can be dreamings for more recent concepts so there for instance there's a, a money dreaming which I found really interesting yeah money dreaming Four-wheel drives, <laughs> they call it Toyota right, dreaming. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. And I think what's interesting about that is, first of all, the whole idea of dreaming is that it recognised that everything has consciousness and it's a matter of then tuning into the consciousness of that particular dreaming. So um, mm. if your um, dreaming is money, then you probably have some sort of un- really deep, deeper spiritual understanding um, of money because money is energy um, then that you could come back and teach people about um, 
so the same thing too, like some people can have sickness dreaming and they very often are the, the greater healers in a, in a community because they understand sickness at that really deep level that uh, they can be immune to certain sicknesses because they possess that dreaming, but then they can heal others. Um, and uh, this is um, really important for um, those. Uh, a lot of the sickness dreaming are located around uranium deposits in, in the ground. And so while others might get sick from uh, you know, disturbing uranium and so forth, uh, the people who have sickness dreaming can actually coexist alongside uranium and be able to heal people um, from uh, injuries sustained by walking onto sickness country. So, mm. Mm. so um, something else I'm interested in is how did the arrival of European colonists affect the dream time and the, and the Aboriginal people's ability to continue to engage with it? Yeah, well, you know, the whole colonisation process was really quite devastating for Aboriginal people in Australia. Um, there were whole tribes that were massacred um, mm. and, and killed and died out as a result. Um, it was a time of great confusion for our people. Um, I know, for instance, that down in Victoria, um, people couldn't understand and so they they, they went to a cultural icon, the rainbow serpent, and blamed the rainbow serpent on what was happening, uh, that that was the wrath of the, the, the rainbow serpent. And so their view of the rainbow snake down there is, is not as positive as mine is, um, and people are actually afraid of the rainbow serpent and talk about it in, in terms of being evil, which is, of course, taking on the whole settler narratives and whatnot. But... Um, it had a de devastating impact when you think that, um, you know, broke down um, the way that uh, culture can be transmitted, the way that language can be transmitted. Um, we went through lots of different um, uh, policies, government policies and that, such as assimilation where they wanted Aboriginal people to be like white people, which meant you couldn't speak your languages and you had to just speak English um, well, that gets rid of a whole lot of culture, doesn't it? Because there's, there are a lot of concepts in Aboriginal languages that's not there um, speaking English, um, the dreaming being one of those. So um, in some places, it really did have a devastating impact and people were um, cut off from that. Uh, but I found once again that there's a um, marvellous resilience among Aboriginal people. So although that had happened and uh, some of those horrible things had happened and that, you know, people were removed from their families, um, we, we talk about the stolen generations in Australia where they removed Aboriginal children from their families deliberately to this view to make them forget about their Aboriginal culture. We even had a policy... Um, where you could um, give up being Aboriginal and apply for what they called an exemption certificate. So you got a, a, a piece of paper that said you were no longer Aboriginal and so you're to be um, treated um, like other Australians. And, of course, that didn't happen in reality. Um, uh, so just really weird concepts like that. But what they did not realise, the colonisers, is that you can't kill the spirit. 
you can try and try as you as you want, but this the spirit remains within. And so many Aboriginal people drew upon that deeper resource of their spirituality to reconnect with the land. Okay, so they might have lost some of the stories, but they felt a strong need to connect with the land and went out onto the bush and started to have spiritual experiences um, and then come back and rediscovered their Aboriginal spirituality. So we went through that whole process, um, uh, the devastating consequences, but as well um, the resilience and the returning and coming back to um, our, our spirituality, which is what I tell Aboriginal people all the time is uh, this is what makes us who we are. It's our greatest strength. It's our greatest resource. And we need to preserve and maintain it for future generations to come. Mm, definitely. I'm really interested to to talk about that. And thank, thank you as well for talking about that. Um, I'm just interested. I mean, do you feel like the the colonisation of Australia was something by an alien metaphysical presence? Or is there something within the dream time that I don't want to say caused it, but how do you in, sort of interpret mm. what happened in Australia when, when European settlers arrived? Yeah. Mm. I've, I've um, thought about that for a, a long time um, and I'm not quite sure where I, I sit with that. I, I sit more along the lines of, well, it happened and this is what um, has made us stronger as a people um, and maybe it was something that we had to go through to get to where we are. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'll leave that to um, to others to, to come up with what they think the answers might be. But certainly for me, I've uh, always had this very strong sense of the presence of the ancestors um, in the bush with us all the time, um, guiding us <clears throat> no matter what, what happens. You know, <clears throat> we're now faced with COVID-19 and I was, somebody was asking me the other day, um, well, you know, well, how do you think Aboriginal people will fare? And I said, you know, we've survived so much. We've survived massacres. We've su- survived near an- annihilation. Um, you know, this is just something new. It's not going to throw us. We're going to rely on ourselves and our strengths, our spiritual strengths, and we will come through this, um, you know, stronger and better than ever. So we're not afraid of it, you know. Um, it's like bring it on. What else can you throw at us that, that hasn't been thrown at us and that we've overcome? So, um, yeah, I think in in some ways, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've I think about colonisation on those very different levels and, you know, for instance, how is it that people, uh, countries are usually invaded from the east, for example, rather than the west? There has to be something in that, for example, Mm. whether it's the tides, that the currents that flow in that particular way or not. But I find that really curious, looking right around the world. Um, And, um, yeah, I... What I'm I'm um, I'm writing a book about the the colonization of Ireland by the the five different waves of people, and that's lending to me uh, giving me some insight into understanding that need to colonize. What is it that 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 
why do people do these things and then why do they kill and um, annihilate the the original peoples that were but there before them and uh, in my novel that I'm writing I'm struggling with this very question and so trying to think at a deeper spiritual level as to as to why it has to be Mm, yeah that's a really fascinating idea I wonder sometimes if there's a point at which a people become settled and and define them like define themselves within borders and then not not all the time but there's then a need to kind of expand those borders like you mm-hmm. in certain places if you there's a it's not just the borders it's, it's a combination of borders and and yeah. how those borders are maintained and the and the hierarchy of the people within them and also i think there's the the idea of a civilizing mission as well that's something that's leaves a really really sour taste in the mouth of like you're doing like you're mm. doing someone a favor by essentially converting them themselves and i i really i really hope that that mindset kind of we're getting past that now i i think the further we look back in history human yeah. history clearly shows that that humans were traveling around the planet a long time ago yeah. um, exploring mm. and and also pe- groups of people move they move from from place to place sometimes for positive reasons sometimes because they have to and mm. and I, I think yeah it's um it's, it's a really fascinating idea and but like you say it's, it's really hard to put your put your finger on why it, why it happens <laughs> mm, yeah yes for sure um you know and you know I'm sure you've heard too of the out of Africa theory this idea that that's where humanity started and began to branch out to other places around the world. Um, it's it's a theory that I don't subscribe to, and mm. um, I know there are some archaeologists who are rethinking this question as well. And um, um, for me, our people um, will, will tell you, the old people will say, Manya, we didn't come from another country. We come from this country, um, and we've always been here. And so it's that's kind of interesting because of that conflict with some archaeologists who who want to paint us to be immigrants too, and and um, I stand very strongly, and so does Bruce Pascoe shares my point of view, and says, um, you know, um, that there are middens in some places of Australia, the shells um, collection of shells that people uh, seafood that people ate. Um, that are so much older than the time when people were said to have left Africa. So how can that be? So, um, yeah, um, I actually um, think that humanity started in Australia and people branched out from here. And I've been thinking about this for a long time and I look to um, uh, cultural artefacts, if you like, to support that theory and um, in particular uh, one Dreamtime story, or there's several of them, but where the crow uh, was once said to be white long ago in the Dreamtime, and he had done some bad deeds and fell on a fire, and his feathers got burnt, and um, he became black then. But I've traced that white crow dreaming right out of Australia, um, through Asia, over to Greece, and even to the Tower of England, where you know, as you know, the ravens. There's the, the story about them, if, should they ever leave the Tower of England, the, the monarchy will collapse. But mm. the, the um, one of uh, this Bran, who's buried there, and his sister, 
also Bronwyn and her name means white crow. So I find that fascinating, following the white goddess, if you like, through those countries. And I think that as people left Australia, they took that Dreamtime story with them and it began to change according, influenced by local languages and cultures along the way. So that's a theory I'm wanting to develop further. Um, but it, it's interesting because it does it deals with this question about human beings and our need to migrate, if you like, and and uh, just where our travels have taken us. Mm, definitely. Well, that sounds fascinating. I, I, are you going to think you'll write a book about that as well? well probably. I was very influenced by um, uh, the white goddess, uh, whose name Robert. What is he? Robert. Fro- um, his last name escapes me. Geez, it's a while since I've read it. Quite erudite book and takes, but um, he and I are somewhere on the same page there, I think, and got the same sort of thoughts about that. But following that white goddess cult that he writes about, yeah, that's a, I think that's a, the very much a possibility um, that I will explore that further to support that theory. Robert Graves, that's who it was, I'd forgotten, yeah. Um, Mm. So I'm sure that will be one. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Munya, this has been such a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're you're most welcome, Rick. Thank you for inviting uh, me to come on and talk. And for people that are interested who want to find out more, I remind them I do have a book called Journey into Dreamtime. It's available through Amazon. And I've just completed um, an online course uh, uh, on teaching people about Aboriginal Dreamtime. So keep an eye out for that as well. Mm. So if people want to find out more about that book and yourself and your work, how best do they do that? Yes, yeah, so they can um, uh, check out my um, business uh, web page, um, Evolves. Uh, with an S on the end, www.evolves.com.au. Or if someone wants to whip me an email, I'm very good with email. Uh, you can write to Munya or lowercase M U N Y A at evolve with an S, Munya at evolves.com.au. And I'm happy to respond to um, anyone getting in touch with me. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to include all that in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you, Munya. In Yerigalgona, go well, Rick. Fantastic. That was such an enlightening conversation to be part of. I felt a real honour to be able to talk with someone as wise and knowledgeable as Munya. The Dreamtime is a fascinating world to explore and features many concepts that I think can help a lot in forming a meaningful insight into what is understood to be supernatural. I love the idea of our world being sung into existence of personal and family dreamings and songlines. There's so much that we didn't get time to talk about as well, so I heartily recommend Munya's book if you liked this episode. If you did, please consider rating and reviewing it wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via coffee. Some other sphere will always be free to listen to, but the support of people like yourself is vital to its future, and for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can be part of that. 
If you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.